Welcome to Diving Board, a show about artists, the art they create, and the wide range of social and cultural ideas they explore. I'm Bill Valerio. I run the Woodmere Art Museum, where we tell the stories of Philadelphia's art and artists. This is a special Diving Board episode featuring a conversation with my friend, Stefan Salisbury, who for 40 years? 40 plus. 40 plus years. We don't have to get into the details of the plus. <laughs> Enough said. For 40 plus years was the chief art writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And Stefan's beat was the art news, institutional news, what's going on in terms of the structural elements that create the cultural scene of our city. I moved to Philadelphia myself in 2002, and so for a good half of your career at the Inquirer, I've had your voice in my mind. <laughs> Serious. I mean, your voice, not literally voice, but your voice as a writer, as part of my consciousness of understanding what's going on in the city and important questions that we all needed to grapple with. And for that, I'm very grateful, Stefan. But today, what we're going to do is talk about your career as an arts journalist, how you got started, how you got into it, what the personal drivers are for you. I'd love to talk about some of the important stories that you've covered thinking of the Gross Clinic at the PMA in particular, for which I think the entire city owes you a debt of gratitude. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about the future and just where is arts journalism headed in the city of Philadelphia? And, you know, how do we look to the future and make sure that there is a dialogue about what's going on in the arts and, and what are the tools that we have at our disposal as people embedded in the arts and as people who care about the arts and care about the city? So, Stefan, it's a pleasure to have you with us today at Diving Board. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's great to be here, Bill. First question is, how are you doing? I mean, you um, are cut loose after 40-plus years at the Enquirer. What does it feel like? Well, it's kind of liberating in a kind of bitter way. You know, you do something for that long, it becomes part and parcel of your identity and your day, literally the practical elements of your day. For instance, today I, I thought, oh my God, I've got to get up. I've got to walk to the train station. It's cold. <laughs> I, I hate walking to the train station when it's cold. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't but, have to do that yeah. anymore. But I did do it. I did do it. Well, thank you for being <laughs> uh, with us here. And let's go back to the beginning of your time in Philadelphia and at the Inquirer. And I just linked those two things together. But tell us, you know, how did you land on your feet here in Philly and at the Inquirer? Back in the late 70s, the Inquirer was the, the go-to place for every journalist in the country, really. There was a tremendous amount of excitement associated with the Inquirer, created largely by the editor then, um, Gene Roberts, who had come down to Philadelphia from the New York Times when uh, the Knights and, and Ritter bought, well, Jack Knight actually bought the Inquirer and decided that Philadelphia deserved something better than what they were getting from Annenberg. So anyway, uh, Roberts came down and uh, became the, the uh, executive editor and proceeded to take what was arguably one of the worst newspapers in the country and make it arguably 
the best or one of the best, certainly, anywhere. But when I arrived in the late 70s, it was not anything like what it became in the 80s and 90s. I came down in the middle of the coverage of Three Mile Island, which was a crazy, wild story. But anyway, the paper was locked in a newspaper war with the Philadelphia Bulletin, which in 1982, the Inquirer won. The Bulletin folded. One of the vivid things I remember is Roberts getting up on a desk in the newsroom on the fifth floor of the tower building and talking about what that day meant for the paper practically. You know, there would be bureaus opening up all over the world, all over the country and whatnot. And that's what happened. I mean, we opened up bureaus in Moscow and, and in London and New Orleans, maybe, uh, and L.A., and uh, there was already somebody in New York. But um, anyway, there were all these uh, this great expansion that took place. But all of that is gone. All those bureaus, all those correspondence, all that great news you could only find in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that's all gone. The one thing that Roberts did at that time, which is now pretty much finally dead, is... He said, we're going to cover the arts. We're going to cover the cultural news of this city. We're going to cover the Philadelphia Orchestra like the Phillies. <laughs> uh-huh. and, uh, the paper still has some pretty good uh, sure. music writers in Peter Dobrin and David Stearns. But anyway, at the time that Robert said that, he we were like most big newspapers in the country. We were not covering the arts. We had some music writers. Dan Webster comes to mind. Uh, we had some art writers. Vicki Donahoe was a longtime art writer for yeah, the Inquirer. Fan- totally fantastic, Vicki Donahoe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when I want to find out information about things that happened at Woodmere, exhibition reviews, for example, I've often gone to Vicki's writing because she covered exhibitions across the city in an amazingly thorough way. And I find out things about Woodmere that I'm the director of through Vicky's writing that I don't think I could find out any other way. Yeah, she was remarkable. And she eventually became the kind of gallery and suburban art writer that covered art institutions outside of the city, which meant mostly outside of the PMA and the Academy. So Roberts got up on that desk. He said, we're going to expand the cultural coverage. And then he proceeded to go about hiring. Um, that was the key because there was Dan Webster who was, wrote about music. There was um, Vicky wrote about art, Bill Collins, and Doug Keating who wrote about theater intermittently. And I mean, at one point, Dan Webster wrote about music, film, theater, Dance, I mean everything. He was he was the arts in Philadelphia. But in 1982, uh, Roberts went on a hiring binge, and the paper proceeded to hire dance writers, music writers for not just classical but also for pop and jazz, art writers. That's when Ed Sosansky was hired. Book writers, cultural writers were brought in from. I was already on the staff, but. 
I was transferred to the art staff. Um, he brought in Michael Kimmelman, for instance, who went on to greater fame as an art writer for the New York Times, was a music writer for the Inquirer. So you took the job as cultural writer. Right. Where were you coming from and what were the credentials that brought you to apply for that job? And I didn't what apply. Made you... I, it was Roberts's belief that any good reporter could write about anything, for better or for worse. So I didn't apply for the job at all. He just decided that things that he saw in my writing for other things, other stories, made him think that I would be a good fit. Wow, that's so interesting because I always knew I wanted to work in the arts. That was not the case for you. You came to this through journalism. Right. And it was Robert. I was who... writing about the criminal justice system, actually. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, yeah. The cultural milieu that Roberts saw as needing coverage was something that was far, far different from what it is today. Take the visual arts. The ecology of the visual arts was really spare. It was almost a desert. Um, the gallery situation was kind of pathetic. Um, there were galleries on Walnut Street. There were no galleries anywhere else, really. Um, there were a couple gallery shops on South Street, like Zagar's Eyes Gallery. But there, in Old City, there was nothing. There were a handful, like two or three very small galleries, none of which still exist, that were in Old City in the early, very early 80s. Uh, and that was it. Here's a city with five art schools, I think, um, graduating hundreds of art students every year. And what did they do? They went to New York. Yeah. There was nothing here. There was no gallery system. There was no reason for art students to stay here. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, the potential there. What changed that or began to change it was the fact that New York became increasingly so expensive. So artists would leave the academy or leave Tyler, and instead of going to New York, they would think, well, maybe I'll just stay here for a little while because it's easier than paying $1,000 a month for a studio. And so once artists started to remain here, then that, that incentivized um, the sort of commercial uh, part of the equation. And galleries started to open up, you know, collective galleries, co-op galleries, Nexus and so forth, Muse Gallery. There were a couple others too, Third Street. They began to kind of thrive for a reason. There were artists in the city who needed outlets and so they they've started to form their own in these collectives and also commercial gallery spaces began to appear more and more regularly and and that's when you know ultimately old cities started to take off eventually yeah. in the early 2000s but it was definitely after the uh, the flow of artists sort of changed in headed back to Philadelphia rather than New York. So what I'm hearing is that the beginning of your career at the Inquirer was a time when an art scene in Philadelphia was being formed yeah. Oh, yeah. gradually over time because artists were making their home here. And I've often thought there is an incredibly important 
history here of these artist collective alternative space galleries, mm-hmm. and this history needs exploration. I haven't heard it placed in this context before, so this is fascinating. What about the museum environment? I want to say a milestone event for the Philadelphia Museum of Art is the big Cezanne exhibition. And I want to say that's 1996, but that was a kind of blockbuster example that other museums across the country took note of, and I think brought the PMA to a new place. And do you see it that way? It was a milestone, but like all events like that, it had a large context. And part of the context was the the city was coming out of a really bad financial collapse under the good administration. And Rindell had sort of brought things back to a certain degree. Um, he had a very contested relationship with the art museum. On the one hand, he saw the value of culture in a way that no other political figures had seen it prior to his administration. I mean, he saw the arts and history as being absolutely critical to the future of Philadelphia commercially and um, economically. But he also didn't like to spend a lot of money on it because Rindell liked to build things. That was his main thing. He was able to put redevelopment money in all kinds of capital projects. Um, He wasn't interested in running them. He wanted them built, and then he'd get other people to do the work of actually running these things. He loved doing all of that. I will say that. And um, he provided a context for the art museum. The Avenue of the Arts, for instance, was a Rindell concept, and that all began in the 90s. And I mean, the backdrop for all this was the bankruptcy the city nearly went into during the good administration. And um, the museum was proving to be good business. And also, the museum was run by Anne Darnancourt. And Bobby Scott became president. And the two of them together really brought that museum out of the financial doldrums and put it really on the map and put it in the mind of people like like the political leaders like Rendell and eventually Tom Ridge, governor. So, Well, it's a fascinating story. And I think we are still living in the cultural city that Ed Rendell built, right? The oh, Kimmel yeah. Center, the Barnes on the Parkway, and the extraordinary growth of the Philadelphia Museum of Art which it's interesting to hear your perspective because mine would be a little bit different having worked at the Philadelphia Museum at that time. And, you know, one of the things that Ed had in terms of my observations was a great sensibility about partnerships with private philanthropic individuals. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about, of course, Jerry Lenfest, Ray Perlman, Connie Williams, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. the leadership of the board at the Philadelphia Museum of Art really worked in partnership with Ed Randell to create the museum that is an engine of activity and excitement and positive spirit in terms of Philadelphia civic pride, but then the kinds of exhibitions that really do bring people in from out of town and put heads in beds and 
meals in restaurants and all of that business. And so what I see in Ed Rendell is somebody who was an absolute genius in building. It's not that he didn't want to spend the money because it seemed to me that he was pretty generous, but that what he was able to do was understand how public money could really leverage philanthropic support and public money from outside of Philadelphia. I mean, NEA, NEH. And I don't think we've had that in Harrisburg since Ed Rendell, but I very much feel that the structures that we are working with today are the result of a lot of his thinking, and for which I'm very grateful. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely. The city's cultural institutions are basically operating as with Rendell's architecture. There's no question about it. I mean, you mentioned the Kemmel Center as a prime example. Well, another one that we have to talk about is the Gross Clinic, which Ed Rendell was involved in. And this was an episode in the cultural life of the city of Philadelphia that you were a primary voice for. And I remember as a staff member at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, I wonder if you could talk about the Gross Clinic. Well, just a quick summary of what it was. This painting by Thomas Aikens uh, of the great surgeon Samuel Gross had been painted for exhibition at the great 1876 Centennial Exhibition, where it had been kind of a flop which was a bitter, bitter disappointment to Aikens. But it was a great hit among the city's medical students and medical community, particularly those connected with Jefferson, where Gross was a world-renowned surgeon. And so one of the classes got together and bought this painting from Aikens, and it hung at Jefferson for forever. But then Jefferson decided to sell because they wanted to, to build, and um, they needed the money. So they got a deal. They uh, got Christie's involved, and Christie's worked out a deal so that Alice Walton, head of the, at that point, unopened Crystal Bridges Museum in Arkansas, she put up the money to buy the Gross Clinic for $68 million with the caveat, and this was the great savior, the caveat in the contract was that Jefferson had to offer the painting to Philadelphia institutions, anyone in Philadelphia. And if the offer of $68 million was matched by a particular date, six weeks in advance, I think it was, then the painting would, could remain in the city in the possession of whoever had put up the money. So... Um, that's a lot of money, and it was a lot of money then, and I don't think sure. any, it was most money for any uh, American painting, certainly pre-20th century painting ever. And there was a press announcement of this event, which um, we got a little bit of advance warning on, and I started calling around to people, and the level of alarm was just palpable from people at the art museum and from cultural people all over the city and all really all over the country. Because this painting, Aikens painted it for the city. It's He wanted it 
to embody the city, and it did do that. It captured the greatness of and complexity of the city's intellectual life, its scientific innovations, the power of its medical industry. I mean, it was just, and the greatness of its artist. Aikens was just a terrific artist. That's number one. And he brought all of this and poured it all into this one painting, um, which had been in Philadelphia its entire existence. I guess where I want to go with this, Stefan, is how was the argument created? Because I think you actively helped shape this argument. I remember very clearly and Darning Court gathering a bunch of us who were involved in the fundraising around a table and saying, folks, this is not about another painting for the Philadelphia Museum of Art. This is about a piece of Philadelphia. This is like the Liberty Bell. Think of another icon, you know, in the visual arts, this is one of them. And we have to Think very carefully about how we frame this conversation because we will fail. It was, you know, an unbelievable journey that lay ahead of us as museum professionals. We raise money for a living. And it's like, wow, how on earth are we going to do this? And it started with having to define the concept. And it seemed to me like you were very much part of helping shape that public conversation about what is this thing. I think that's true in the sense that in writing about it, I kept encountering the Philadelphia aspects of it. Who was Gross? Where did he practice? What did he do? Who was Aikens? Where did he come from? Why was he painting Gross? All these questions led you directly to Philadelphia and Philadelphia's role within that America you were just talking about. I was not all that familiar with the Gross Clinic. I certainly had seen it. I didn't know a lot of the backstory of it. And so I think that when I was thinking about it, I thought about Philadelphia. That was the one thing that was like a magnet for a reporter. You know, why should anybody care about anything? Well, you you care about things that are close to you. And, you know, everyone could understand Philadelphia and its connection to this painting, which, you know, most people are blank slates, Bill. I mean, they they didn't know this painting. They never heard of it. So if you write about it and write about why it's significant and why it's significant in the context of the city that they live in, then they're going to say, oh, yeah, we get that. There were a lot of people actually um, in the city who said, why should we spend $68 million for a painting when there are people starving? And that's perfectly legitimate. I didn't hear a lot of that actually, but I did hear some. And I mean, it's part of the choices that you make uh, as a public official or as an institutional official. You're going to put the money here rather than there and you know or you're going to put them in both places i will share that one of my jobs as part of this effort i was assigned to work with the volunteers who were manning the phones because people were calling us up and people had questions about will i get my money back if the effort is unsuccessful that was a very big question there were school children who sent in the contents of their piggy banks 
There were (laughs) school teachers who took up collections in their schools from other educators and from students in their schools. It was an amazing grassroots effort. And I have to say, in my own efforts, I've learned from it. And so, you know, at Woodmere, we just purchased a building that we're expanding into. Mm -hmm. And I thought back to the Gross Clinic playbook because I also had a short period of time to raise a lot of money to buy a building. And I had a deadline. And, you know, one of the first phone calls I made was to the publisher of the Chestnut Hill Local, which people in Woodmere's community read and read seriously and created a partnership with the newspaper and said, you know, I really want to be able to work together with you. And I appreciate your helping me frame this as something that is a community-oriented dimension of the arts in people's lives, or at least that's, that's what I believe. And it came directly from the Gross Clinic experience that I had had. Well, the Gross Clinic was, I mean, it's remarkable that the city was able to to retain this just incredible painting, but it was not without cost. Um, the PMA had a partner in this project, for instance, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, which was not as financially robust, if you will, um, as the PMA. And when the campaign to raise the $68 million uh, drew to a close, there had to be a bank loan, a substantial bridge loan, as I recall, many millions of dollars. And the academy, I believe this is the case, was really forced to sell a major Aikens painting in order to bridge the gap so that it wouldn't completely go in the red. And of course, the art museum had to sell a couple of not nearly as significant Aikens paintings. It was a choice, a tough choice, but it was a choice that the institution and its trustees to make. And, you know, I think I can speak for my colleagues and say that they struggled over it, but Mm -hmm. ultimately... They made that decision. As a staff person at the art museum, I felt like I had to support my colleagues and the trustees Mm -hmm. of another institution in a tough choice that they made. So, Stefan, here we are in 2023. If something of this magnitude were to happen in the art life of the city of Philadelphia, would it be successful? Well, it's hard to imagine. Oh, we don't have Anne. We don't have Jerry. (laughs) We don't have Ed Rendell. I mean, Ed Rendell helped Anne raise that money. Arlen Specter. We don't have Arlen played a role in this. Those are individuals, and the institutions that they represented remain. But the institution of the paper doesn't exist anymore. So I think it's impossible to conceive of something like that happening without, without the newspaper. I say there's no newspaper. There is obviously an entity that is the Philadelphia Inquirer, but it is not anything like what it was then. I mean, there were like 600, 700 people in the newsroom. As we speak here on uh, January 17th, there's no physical newsroom for the Philadelphia Inquirer. It is operating out of a rented WeWork type space in the gallery because it doesn't have a place to live yet. It will eventually move into um, a building on Independence Mall. But at the moment, it's There's no there there. So, yeah, you can't have a campaign like that without a newspaper. So, Stefan, we've talked about the city 
the cultural institutions, the growth of the parkway, the avenue of the arts. We've come through the Gross Clinic episode, you know, bringing us more up to the moment. We've come through the pandemic. We've come through a period of racial reckoning that has swept across the country. We've talked a little bit about the Inquirer and the type of newspaper it is today relative to what it was 40 years ago when you arrived here. Um, where are we now? I mean, what are the big issues that you see facing the city of Philadelphia in the arts? Well, I think that the critical thing is how cultural institutions themselves come to grips with their own racial issues. For instance, the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts and the African American Museum are collaborating on a joint exhibition, which will open in, in the spring. I think that the Academy is using this as an opportunity to rethink its entire collection and its entire installation of its collection. Once the exhibition is completed and comes down, what kind of academy should be there in the future? Will it continue to be the academy of Benjamin West and Aikens and all these endless generations of white men? Or will it be an academy that is more accommodating and, and more inclusive and more realistic about what the culture of the United States really is. Because the culture of the United States is not just fine art painted by guys who went to the academy. It covers a whole range of materials and um, experiences and people and whatnot. So should the academy take that into consideration in presenting art to people? I mean, I think the answer they've come to is, yeah, it should. So, well, once you make that decision, then how do you go about bringing it into existence? I think what we're talking about is institutional vision. Mm -hmm. You said there's this history. That history does not go away. It remains to be grappled with, and it has an impact on the present inevitably. And so I guess the way I would phrase it, and I think what I would say about the example you gave of the Academy is I have real faith that the academy is going to find a balance. And I think that's what all of our institutions are doing. You know, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, PAFA, Woodmere, the Barnes, is, you know, how do we look at our history? We have to acknowledge the past and its flaws. You know, Charles Wilson Peale owned slaves, and we have to grapple with that. I mean, he's one of the founding fathers of American art and deeply flawed and, you know, I often say, this is not who we are now, but we can't hide from what that history is or, you know, who the founders of our museums were. It's a history that's there. We can't hide it because there's no hiding it. But I feel like the job of the press is to hold people's feet to the fire and make sure that people are honest and in good faith. And there's a role that the press plays in this dialogue going forward. I think that we're in kind of dangerous territory culturally um, and socially. Uh, the newspaper business in general is weakened and is in the process of tremendous transformation. And what it will ultimately emerge as, I, I can't possibly say. You know, in a way, we've come almost full circle to what 
existed in Philadelphia prior to the arrival of Knight Ritter and Gene Roberts. Until the 60s, newspapers didn't cover the arts much at all. I mean, just traditionally, they, there was something called the women's page in most newspapers where there'd be fashion stuff and and that's where they would stick the art reviews if they had any art reviews or art writing at all. And we're sort of now back to that same position. We went through a kind of a golden period in the 80s and 90s. And I do think that the major national newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, to a lesser extent, the Washington Post, and even, I think, to some degree, the LA Times, they have a strong cultural presence in their daily report. But regional newspapers, not so much. And it's hard to really pinpoint why that is so. I think part of it is that the people that are putting the newspapers together now are not newspaper people. They're, they're from some other professions that have merged digitally with news. And their interests and backgrounds are not news-oriented. So you see this reflected in the kind of fall-off of coverage of arts and cultural stuff as news. And you see it in the fall off in coverage of events in general as news. I'm very honored that your last major piece for the Philadelphia Inquirer was, you know, an article about the George Biddle exhibition at Woodmere. And you chose some very specific things to focus on in that article. And I wonder, how do you decide what you're going to write about when, you know, you're confronting an exhibition, a situation in the arts. How do you know where to start and how are you going to open up a story so that it connects with people? That's a question that has as many different answers as there are stories, because every story is different. And the bad thing with newspaper writing is that journalism schools, which I did not attend, I might add, teach you to write stories based on a formula, who, what, when, where, and why, what's the most important thing, you know, ladder the stories. But that doesn't really work very well for feature stories. It can be okay for news stories, but but for feature stories, there's really no formula. And as the new journalism blew up all formulas, you know, after Tom Wolfe and Gay Talese and, and in, in Philadelphia, Richard Ben Kramer, people like that, these brilliant writers. There's no way you could, you could write a formula-based story and then look yourself in the mirror in the morning. So, you know, as I say, I don't think it's possible to answer that question in a definitive way. Uh, you mentioned that the last story that I did for the paper was a... Uh, story based on the George Biddle exhibition at, at Woodmere. I mean, there, the idea of George Biddle, this descendant of the guy who, from the setting up the second bank and all these centuries of Biddles in Philadelphia running, running everything, certainly the financial system, to have all that come down to George Biddle palling around with Diego Rivera in Mexico, 
touring and doing sketching on the street and so forth. How could you not write about that? How could you not play with that tension, that paradox? But that's something that was absolutely endemic to that particular story. Couldn't translate it to anything else. I think that you really do let the story speak to you. And then you just take it down and send it out into the world. Well, I think that's a beautiful place to leave it. And Stefan, thank you for joining us. I have to say that you have made my life personally, as somebody who cares about the arts, fuller. And you've given me a greater understanding of the cultural institutions that fill my life and fill the life of this city and beyond. And so I'm going to raise my Dixie cup of water (laughs) and say thank you and congratulations on a career that has been meaningful at the Philadelphia Inquirer. And let's hope that we can all move into the future together in ways where the kind of work that you have done will continue to happen. It will happen in different ways, but I think that that's something that we are all jointly responsible for as we move our culture forward. So thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Bill. It's been fun. It's been an honor to write about all this over the decades. It's been uh, at times fun and at times very painful, but... <laughs> but, well, uh, but well, it's, and that's uh, journalism, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's the nature uh, yeah. of the beast. Absolutely. So thank you. Please come visit Woodmere. There's always cool stuff happening. You can learn about Woodmere at woodmereartmuseum.org and all of our upcoming programming. Diving Board is produced by Stephanie Marutis of Cubenta Media and mixed by Brad Linder. I'm Bill Valerio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.